Hello and welcome. A turning point may be defined as an event or set of events that had it not happened as it did would have prompted a different course in history. Dictionaries often define it as a point at which a significant change occurs. The Battle of Gettysburg, for example, in the American Civil War, the iconic meeting between Pope Leo X and Attila the Hun on the banks of the Tiber in 452 AD, the Industrial Revolution in Great Britain in the 1760s, the first successful powered and piloted flight in history by the Wright brothers in 1903, India's Cricket World Cup victory in 1983, Zina in the Rain in the Bollywood movie Satyam Shivam Sundaram, that may be not that last one. Welcome to our weekly podcast and today let us share a few turning points, events which changed the path of progress of human civilization. I am Ratin Basu and with me is the man who's never afraid to make his point, Joy Bhattacharya. And this is Fact of the Matter. So what turning points are we talking about? But before that, let's check in with Joy. Joy, how are you doing? And I remember you telling me once, not, not a few years back, that Zenith Aman had an incredible effect on your young mind in the 70s. Was that a turning point in any way? Care to elaborate? Young and impressionable mind is uh, the words I would use as well, but it wasn't Zenith Aman for once you've got this wrong. The one I used to dream about was a lady called Parveen Babi. And of course, she had to, you know, she was also started off as somebody, her first film was with the cricketer Salim Durrani. She appeared on the cover of Time. So for me, you know, in India, there are all these debates, you know, Gavaskar versus Vishwanath, you know, Dravid versus Ganguly versus Tendulkar. Right. And there used to be another debate, which was Parveen Babi versus Dinataman. I'm on Parveen Babi's side. Well, you know, I, I can't say you were impervious to all of these effects, but um, I think that's fair <laughs> enough. I mean, going yeah, with... We'll leave it there. We'll leave it there. Yeah, we'll let's, let's not go there. Let's leave, leave let's it at that. Let's keep our intact. Yeah, yeah. exactly. <laughs> <laughs> so, so I want to tell you that I had great fun in researching uh, turning points. And, you know, there are many, many stories which I came across and it was quite difficult to actually um, focus on some. Um, but today I would like to start off with you, Joy. What, what is your, um, you know, interesting tidbit about turning points? So the first one I want to start with is... I've chosen the turning points because I've chosen really small incidents that have had huge outcomes. Okay. So this one is actually an examination. Okay. Okay. So in his 1925 biography, this man described how in his youth, he wanted to become a professional artist, but his dreams were ruined because, you know, he failed the entrance examination of the Academy of Fine Arts Vienna two times, first in 1907, again in 1908. And his first examination, he had passed the preliminaries, but failed in the second part. The Institute said that, you know, you actually have a bit of talent. Why don't you try and become an architect instead? But if he had to become an architect, he'd have to go back to school. And he didn't want to go back to school. He had dropped out of school. And so he decided he just was frustrated, turned to politics. His name is Adolf Hitler. Wow. And I'll tell you a very interesting story after that. Much, much more recently, about 60, 70 years later, yeah. Somebody actually went to the Academy of Fine Arts Vienna and showed them some of the paintings that Hitler had painted and said, would you accept this guy? And the examiners looked at it and said, look, this man seems to have a bit of talent. I think you would have given him a chance. So, you know, if they had been there instead, Hitler may never, he might have been a painter in Vienna doing his stuff, enjoying himself. 
the world and, might have been a very, very different place. But I still think he would have been a very grumpy and a very, very angry uh, teacher as a, as, as, a, as a art teacher. Because after watching all the memes on social media, which, which often get used to explain various situations all over the world, um, imagine what that would be. Uh, you know, a row of students sitting in front, frantically trying to create masterpieces and a very uh, angry Hitler with that beautiful iconic mustache, you know, walking in between and pointing out and making out. But, you know, yeah, that's that's a that's a massive turning no, point no. for sure. No, no, not just a turning point. He's also, you know, I think he's also completely deluded because in 1939, this is just before the war, you know, September 39 is the war, this is August 39. Right. He met British ambassador Neville Henderson and told him, I'm an artist. I'm not a politician. Once the Polish question is settled, I want to end my life as an artist. <laughs> Famous last words. Well, um, I believe he said that in 30, I'm, 30 I'm not surprised. If you remember, Joy, um, a slightly older friend of yours, uh, Emperor Nero, uh, apparently said, <laughs> though I don't know Latin, that he's also a big artist and he loves playing the fiddle. So, you know, people, people do have a tendency to focus on arts when, you know, Actually, I mean, would would something like Attila the Hun be an expert in, let's say, uh, crochet making? You never know. Look, yeah, yeah, it could be. I mean, all of them have those sides to them. Apparently, uh, Mussolini, when he used to see emotional films or he used to watch the opera, he used mm. to cry his eyes out and people would say, what a warm-hearted man. And then he'll go shoot a few people just to make sure that people have got this point. So yeah, <laughs> I don't believe these tears <laughs> Unbelievable. And uh, okay, I, I'll then tell you what I have. And uh, you, you spoke about 1939 and, and Adolf Hitler. I will take you back a few years earlier. And I'll, I'll take you back quite a few years back. I'll go to 1869. And why I chose this year? Because I found out that two really big events happened, which changed the world of transport, and therefore had a massive effect on how Western and global civilization moved from that point. The first was in America, in North America. What happened was on May 10th, 1869, the Central Pacific Railroad President, Leland Stanford, by the way, after whom the University of Stanford today is named, yeah, uh, yeah. he, he ceremonially tapped a gold spike with a silver hammer at a place called Promontory Summit in, I think, in Utah. And with that, the first transcontinental railroad opened for traffic between Sacramento and Omaha. Now, the resulting coast-to-coast -coast railroad connection revolutionized, you know, the, the settling and the economy of the American West. Remember, it was called the Wild West, but this sort of tamed the Wild West a little bit. It brought the Western states and territories into alignment with the Northern Union states and made, you know, transporting of passengers, goods, from one coast to the other, quicker, safer, less expensive. And this was very iconic. Uh, called the Pacific Railroad, later the Overland Route, a 1912-mile continuous railroad line. That's about 3,077 kilometers. Um, constructed for about seven years. I think really changed by three private companies over public lands. But uh, it, it became a turning point in American history because it opened up the so-called Wild West. The same year, another big event happened in the world of transportation. What happened? The Suez Canal officially opened on 17th November. See how interesting it is. 
And, you know, it's a artificial sea level waterway, I'm sure most of you are already aware of that in Egypt. It connects the Mediterranean Sea to the Red Sea through the Isthmus of Suez, which divides Africa and Asia. And, you know, uh, Ferdinand de Lesseps in 1858 had formed the Suez Canal Company to build. Construction started in 1859, went on for 10 years under the regional authority joy of the Ottoman Empire at that time. And, you know, the canal uh, extends from the northern terminus of Port Said, which is very famous and made famous by Agatha Christie and all, his, all her uh, Nile or Egypt-based mysteries. And the southern terminus is uh, a port called Port Taufik at the city of Suez. So its length is about 193 kilometers. And, you know, uh, in 2020, for example, more than 18,500 vessels traversed the canal, except for a few days when one boat blocked it, as we are all aware. Now, <laughs> the interesting bit is this canal was the property of the Egyptian government, but because of its, uh, you know, the, the concessionary company was uh, run by mostly the Brits and the French. But when President Gamal Abdel Nasser nationalized it, it led to the Suez crisis in 1956, if you remember. And there was a, you know, the canal was once closed at the beginning of the Six Day War uh, for about precisely eight years. And then that led to a lot of chaos. But the key thing about the canal joy, the key bit of trivia is once it opened, it reduced the journey from, let's say, London to uh, Mumbai by approximately 9,000 kilometers, about 8,900 kilometers, which to my mind, joy would probably mean about anywhere between 15 to 20 days on, uh, on, on the high seas, or maybe less or more, depending on the, yeah. on the speed. But you remember the earlier route used to be around the Cape of Good Hope. So it, the, the ships would come all the way down, around the, Horn, uh, around the Cape of Good Hope, go up, and then you know, uh, enter the Arabian Sea, and then come to India and beyond, Ceylon, India, etc. But this changed the scene. I mean, you know, travel changed between the... Uh, one side of the empire to uh, Great Britain, which I thought was iconic. So two, the same year, two big movements in the world of transport, which changed two different sides of the world. And, you know, the effect is still there today to see. It's, it's, it's really interesting that you bring up Lesseps because Lesseps after that yeah. goes on and decides, tries to make the Panama Canal. Okay. Right. And he gets it together. He starts making the Panama Canal because he's now this known expert on canals, you know, connecting. He can't do it. Basically, he says that in Africa and Asia, the conditions were much better. Right. Here, the, all the construction workers were devastated by yellow fever and malaria. They stopped the project. Dillaseps gives up. And then later, the American government takes it over and finishes it. But yeah, those are two, I mean, and really changed the British Empire. If you look at it, that Suez Canal gave the British Empire maybe another 40, 45 years Absolutely. at the you know, apex of the world. And that made a huge difference. Uh, but the guy I want to talk about next is a guy who's, uh, since you went back to 1869, I have decided to go back another 300 years. <laughs> I've decided to go to 1556. Ah. Second Battle of Panipat. And somebody we don't really know too much about is a chap called Hem Chandra, better known as Hemu. He was originally the Minister of Commerce for uh, Islam Shah. And after that, Islam Shah gets thrown out. Adil Shah comes in and he decides that he's not going to take this. And he takes over. He kills Adil Shah and becomes the emperor of Hindustan himself. And this Hemu is really a tough general. 
he then fights 22 battles against Mughal generals, beats them all. Okay. So right. finally, Humayun has passed away. Bairam Khan is there. Akbar and Bairam Khan meet Hemu's forces in the second battle of Panipat, November 5th, 1556. And in the battle, Hemu always fought on his elephant. He was right. leading his troops. His troops were mainly Afghans. They were really hammering the Mughals. So the Mughal army was beaten into three sections, was made into three sections. Right. And the first two sections were absolutely smashed. Right. Only the reserve were left. And at that point in time, one of the Mughal archers hit Hemu's eyes with an arrow. And just a lucky shot. Right. Okay. Now, if that arrow does not hit, nothing happens. The issue is, even then, Hemu is not dead. What happened as a result was, he fell unconscious and his army thought he was dead. Right. And the moment the Mughals heard that, they started shouting, Hemu is dead, we're going to win it. And right. the complete battle changes. You know, Hemu's forces go away. They start running on the battlefield. They are chased by the Mughals. The Mughals take Hemu captive and they later execute him. But just one lucky arrow changed it. Otherwise, Hemu had won 21 consecutive battles against Mughal generals. So it goes to show how just one lucky strike during a war can just completely turn the fate of the war. Did, did this story of Hemu, um, did this come about again when uh, Mike Gatting tried the reverse sweep in the finals <laughs> of the 1987 World Cup? Do you think Steve Waugh and Greg Dyer, the wicketkeeper, might have been muttering about it or bringing up this story when Mike Gatting's reverse sweep, uh, some say, almost threw away a match which was pretty much in England's grasp in a very similar uh, manner, right? If you remember, the 87 uh, yeah, yeah, that, World that, Cup that match, that match was... In fact, yeah, pe when people talk about it and they talk about, you know, the 99 World Cup and uh, the catch that dropped, uh, Herschel Gibbs dropped, yeah. they turned around. Actually, the 87 was a far bigger turning point, I feel. 87, that sweep by Mike Gatting changed it. And remember, if the Australians hadn't won them, yeah, the course of cricket over the next two generations. Because after that, the next fifteen years, Australia dominated the game. I, I possibly might not have happened. I remember uh, reading somewhere that apparently, um, if Australia had lost that World Cup final, then Alan Border could well have lost his uh, position as captain, and that could have had a a very very uh, you know sort of a, a calamitous effect on Australian cricket. Because if you remember before that, they had a pretty you know, with the Packer Circus and then Kim Hughes and then a steady stream of captains coming in and going out. Um, uh, there was a bit of a turmoil in Australian cricket. And, yeah, yeah. And Australian I, cricket was not in a good place. Right. And then Border, when he lifted that trophy, um, actually started the golden age of Aussie cricket, which then went on for years and years. I mean, even today, Australians are uh, probably still... Uh, reaping the benefits of that fantastic uh, afternoon or afternoon or day of cricket at the Eden Gardens in Kolkata, which I remember, I was I was I was a part of that uh, crowd, and it was it was. You had to show off, Ratan. You had to show off. You know, till a, now it is good. I was wondering why you had to bring up this particular story. Yes. Tell us. Okay, you were there at the match. Absolutely. Tell us, tell us, it, was, it, was, it was it was it was bittersweet because uh, India had lost the. Uh, semi-finals I remember to England before that where England uh, sort of swept us Green Gooch's side if I remember or was it Green Gooch yeah I think he was there I mean all of them swept us uh, and and you know it, it was a sad day for cricket fans all over India but to tell you Joy 
the, the people of Kolkata actually turned up in full force. It was a packed stadium. And uh, because England had beaten India, the entire crowd was in Australia's favor. And after the match was over, if you hear, if you heard the noise coming from the audience and the fans, you would have thought that the match was happening in an Australian, like a, a Sydney or MCG or some such place. I remember it was unbelievable. It was phenomenal. What an experience. My first World Cup final, by the way. That, that, that's what it was. But anyways, I mean, that's, that's a brilliant story from Himu. And of course, I'm sure Steve Baugh had not at all brought up Himu. We were just trying to fool around. But I have another interesting uh, story, which I thought, Joy, uh, I should bring up, which is something I found during my research. At the entrance to bull rings in places, and bullring is where bullfighting happens. I'm talking about that bullring, not the Wanderers Cricket Stadium in Johannesburg, which is also called the bullring, but at the entrance to actual bullrings in Barcelona and many other bullrings in Spain, there is a bronze figure of a matador saluting a bust of a man, an Englishman called Sir Alexander Fleming, the man who discovered something called penicillin, which saved many bullfighters' lives. And the story today I have, my turning point is from the world of medicine. And my story is about penicillin and Sir Alexander Fleming. And this is the story. Before penicillin, there was no effective treatment for infections such as pneumonia, gonorrhea, or rheumatic fever. Hospitals often were full of people with blood poisoning contracted from a mere cut or a scratch. And doctors had no idea what to do, but just hope for the best. Antibiotics, penicillin being probably the first of it all, are compounds which are produced by bacteria and fungi, which are capable of killing or inhibiting competing microbial species. Now, later we've learned that ancient Egyptians often applied a piece of moldy bread to infected wounds for the same purpose, to actually create an antibiotic and have it effective. But Alexander Fleming, professor of bacteriology at St. Mary's Hospital in London in 1928, discovered accidentally penicillin, the first true antibiotic. How did this happen? He was coming back from holiday on the 3rd of September, and he was sorting through old Petri dishes, which contained you know, colonies of various bacteria, staphylococcus, etc., that causes boils, sore throats, etc. He noticed something unusual on one dish where he found that a certain blob of mold was growing where all the bacterial colonies were all gone. So he started working around the mold, which was later identified as a rare strain of Penicillium notatum, which is what was clear. Now, remember, Fleming found this mold, that this mold juice or whatever was capable of killing a wide range of harmful bacteria. So he tried to get his assistance, two people called Craddock and Ridley, to isolate pure penicillin from this mold juice. And he, had, he could only find very small amounts of that, though he published his findings in June 1929 and became the discoverer of penicillin. But the important thing is the practical benefit of penicillin, as in who would manage to get it in industrial quantities, you know, actually turn it from a laboratory curiosity into a life-saving drug. That is not Alexander Fleming. That was Howard Florey, Ernest Chain, and their colleagues at the Sir William Dunn School of Pathology at Oxford. Now, this happened in 1939, much later, 
at the start of the Second World War, where they tried to create industrial quantities of penicillin. So that was very important, I thought. They started growing it in baths, bedpans, milk churns, food tins. A team of penicillin girls were employed to inoculate and generally look at the fermentation, etc., etc. And then they started experimenting on patients and started discovering it. So I thought this was brilliant, a fascinating story. Still was on, and Fleming was honest enough to admit that he got it by accident. Yeah. And it's because he was regarded as a very clumsy chemist, somebody who kept dropping stuff around. Had he accidentally hadn't dropped that mold, it would never have happened. The interesting part is also there's an India connection. Okay. The holiday home that he went to for his holiday for two, three weeks while this mold grew, right. that place is known as the Dhun. So the name of his cottage where he oh. went for a holiday was the Dhun. So yeah. So there is an India connection there as well. And you know, I wow. love the way Alexander Fleming, I mean, always took it, but never, never took it on his ego saying, you know, I invented it. He said, you know, I completely got it by accident. And he was honest enough to admit it. To admit it. Fantastic. So that, I mean, we could, I guess we could talk about turning points all, all day long and for many more episodes, but these were some highlights and uh, without, you know, uh, wasting any more time we will now move on to the next section which is believe it or not and joy this section is about interesting bizarre weird news we are broadly on the theme of turning points what is your story today so my story today is very simple it comes all the way from australia again because i really enjoy that place and it's about somebody who we know a little bit about so there is an actor called mel gibson now, okay. Mel Gibson started off wanting to, you know, become an actor, but uh, he attended the National Institute of Dramatic Art in Sydney, performed a few stage productions, but he wasn't doing really well. So, you know, there was this film called Mad Max, which was being made. And remember, the first Mad Max was a very guerrilla production, very yeah. cheap, as much little money as possible. So his friend was trying out for the film. So Mel Gibson said, okay, I'll come along with you. Now, the night before the audition, Gibson got into a fight in a bar. Okay, So okay. when he shows up for the audition, his face was completely covered in bruises. Now, if you know Mad Max, they have the, all these interesting characters and personalities. Yep. So the director saw him and said, you know what? This guy looks interesting. And just because his face was beaten up, he was asked to come back two, three weeks later for a next casting session. This time the director said, hey, you look very good. Gave him the lead part. And that's how Mel Gibson became the star he is all because he had a fight at a bar and got his face bashed up. Fantastic. So are you trying to say tomorrow or come, <laughs> come next weekend, you and I should try and get into some bar fights here in Delhi? Maybe that could set us off on a, on a on trail in Hollywood? No? Uh, I know. Uh, yeah. Yes. Or, <laughs> I wouldn't count on it. I think, <laughs> I I think not in Delhi. <laughs> I think we'll give it a pass, come to think of it. Okay, so my bizarre news, or it's not that bizarre, but it's interesting news this week, is about another extraordinary sports sportsman and an extraordinary boxer who is called the greatest, Muhammad Ali. Now, boxing fans, you know all about Muhammad Ali and his achievements, etc. But today I want to talk about a particular piece of news item I found about how he got into boxing. And this is because of a red and white Schwinn bicycle he owned as a boy and how a theft of this bicycle set him on the path to greatness. Now, according to this news item in BBC Sport, the 12-year-old Ali 
had gone to Louisville, Kentucky's you know home exhibition in 1954, and uh, you know he's he's often called the Louisville Lip because he came from Louisville. Now he and his friends were there just to claim some free treats, and this yeah you know the young man was only interested in having a good time. But while they were there, Ali's Schwinn bicycle was stolen. Now this was very devastating for him. His family had was always struggling financially, and you know a lot of money had to be saved before his father had you know, given him, gifted him this bike. So Ali was very fearful that, you know, he would get into trouble. So he hurried to report the theft and found a police officer called Joe Martin in front of him. Now in a remarkable twist of fate, and that's the turning point, it happened that Martin trained aspiring young boxers. And, uh, you know, he saw a spark in Ali and Ali apparently declared to Martin that he would exact vengeance on the on the thief when he was caught with his fists. Now, Joe Martin told him that you better learn to fight before you start fighting. Apparently, Ali said, teach me. Joe Martin said, come and meet me. And then the boxing gym, the sights and sounds, you know, Ali says in his autobiography, excited him so much that he forgot about the bike and quickly started becoming, uh, or proved to be a natural under Martin's tutelage. Then he, you know, uh, Joe Martin arranged to fight for Cassius Clay, as he was known then, against a guy called Ronnie O'Keefe. Um, and Ali won, and that started the incredible journey of Muhammad Ali to becoming the greatest. So I thought that was, Joy, a very, very interesting story. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I wonder if the thief ever, you know, knew whose bike he had taken and looked back later or heard this story and said, you know what, I changed the history of world boxing because I stole that bicycle on that particular day. It's quite Correct. possible. I mean, if he, if today he was around, he'd probably sell it on eBay and make millions out of that bike. <laughs> Absolutely. Absolutely. Or uh, reenact the uh, theft and turn it into an NFT. And, you know, the Ali's family <laughs> estate could actually make millions or billions out of that. Who knows? But that brings us to the end of um, Believe It or Not, our section on weird, bizarre, funny news. And this is the time we take our one and only break. But before we go into the break, we would like to remind our listeners that you can send us your feedback, suggestions, answers to our quiz questions, which we'll bring up later to this email address, factofthematterindia at gmail.com. You can also catch all our episodes on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Report, Stitcher, and whichever platform you prefer. If there are platforms we are not there and you want us to be available, please let us know at the same email address. Remember to click on the follow button, which will ensure that you automatically get informed whenever a new episode drops. And as always, please give us your feedback, reviews, rate us so that we can get more and more visibility across all these platforms. You can also check our website at anchor.fm backslash fact of the matter and give us your feedback there. With this, we will catch you on the other side. Welcome back. As promised, we move into our next section, which as always is cute words and phrases. And this time I will start off with my word for this week, which is the word 
dunce, D-U-N-C-E. Um, again, this is a derogatory word for someone considered incapable of learning, like the opposite of a bright student, for example. But there is a very, very interesting origin about how this word came about. Now, this word dates to the time of a man called John Duns Scotus, S-C-O-T-U-S, was born around 1266 AD and died in 1308. He was a Scottish Franciscan philosopher and theologian and had very good, you know, uh, had, had a lot of work on metaphysics, theology, grammar, logic, etc. And it became so popular that they earned him the honor of a papal accolade and his followers became known as Duns, but not with a C and E, but with an N and S. But the Renaissance came along and all the theories of John Duns Scotus and methods were immediately discredited by the Protestants and humanist scholars. His supporters clung to his ideas and the supporters eventually were called Dunsmen or Duns. And this was used in a derogatory fashion to describe those who continued to support outdated ideas. The word gradually then in a more general sense, you know, came to refer to someone who's considered slow-witted. Interestingly, Joy, though this, you know, John Duns Scotus is probably not so well known anymore. His teaching is still held in high regard by the Catholic Church and he was beatified as recently as 1993. But woe betide the person who is called a Duns by somebody who's not Catholic. And, you know, I thought, wow, the meaning has actually twisted or changed so much from the initial person and what he worked on. So, yes, it is a point of inflection in a manner of speaking in, in line with the theme I have. What do you think? Yeah, absolutely. There's so many words like this. And I find it very interesting when words change meaning over time. Right. Like the word vulgar again. Vulgar again originally just meant used by the common people. Okay, right. That's all it means for the common people. So the original Bibles were called the Vulgate Bibles because they were written in simple language for mm. the common people. Right. When vulgar became, you know, lacking in cultivation or taste is something that, you know, happened so much later. And you never understand how these things through history, they suddenly changed from suddenly becoming really important. They become, you know, just the opposite. Well, I, I've got another one. And I think I've got, I think this is, I think around the 18th century. Right. Uh, there's a phrase called stealing somebody's thunder. You know, okay. you steal their thunder. You know, you tell the joke first or you, you know, somebody else is going to make a performance, but you do so well that you steal their thunder. Okay. So it comes from this dramatist called John Dennis. So John Dennis had invented this machine, which okay. had iron balls rolling down oak shelves. Okay? okay. And it created a sound that was exactly like thunder. Okay. And he had launched a play called Appius in Virginia and he used it. The play was a total, total failure. Okay. 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 So what happens is a couple of months later, he walks into a performance of Macbeth. And you know, Macbeth has a lot of thunder and lightning. Yes. And he sees his machines being used, his, you know, iron balls designed by him to make the thunder. So he turns around and he says that they don't show my plays, but they steal my thunder. And that's where stealing someone's thunder comes into play. So yeah, how phrases happen. You just one man shouting out there, they've stolen my thunder. And suddenly an it's an expression that you use, all of us use two centuries later. It's phenomenal. That's brilliant. Well, 
that was cute words and phrases. I mean, we, we could bring in some more, but we suddenly realized, Joy, that this is time for our turning point, a turning point in our relationship, which is bare naked lies. And this week, we will try once again to find who can beat the other person through one question. And Joy, like a good, you know, like a good player, like a, uh, like a proper combatant, I give you first choice. Hit me with your question. Ah, ah, so you're sort of, you're like saying that, okay, you've given up the toss. Okay, it's my chance. So I'm going yes. to go for it. Okay. The ice cream cone was invented during the 1904 World Fair when they were running out of plates to serve the ice cream. And next door, there was a French waffle machine being used. And they instead put those ice creams in waffles and gave them because they were running out of dishes. True or false? Wow. When did you say it was again? In 1904. 1904. During the World Fair, ice creams being sold, they ran out of dishes. There was a waffle machine by a Frenchman next door. And they borrowed the waffles from there. Ah. Joy, I can't see your face, so I don't know whether you're bluffing or not. So I will trust you, Joy, given our long friendship. And I will say this is true. I'll go with true. Not true. <laughs> Sorry, <laughs> I cheated this time. <laughs> but I cheated. I cheated and I cheated badly. I admit this is not an unfair one because it was invented during the 1904 World Fair. Okay. It was because they ran out of dishes. Okay. okay. But what they did was next door, there wasn't a French waffle machine. Okay. There was a Syrian guy okay. called Ernest A. Humvee who okay. had something called Zalabis. They're like, right. they're called Zalabis and they are like cones. And right. those Zalabis were filled right. and those were actually served. So look, I'm going to give you half points because you got it half correct. I think I cheated by making that Syrian into a Frenchman. And I find it very interesting because every time Syria, you know, America bombs Syria, they probably turn around and say, we gave you your ice cream cone and you're bombing us in exchange because wow. the ice cream cone came from Syria. Okay. okay. So half marks. Half, half for marks. me. Fair enough. Fair enough. Now, my question for you. Now, today, more than 650 million bottles of ketchup, tomato ketchup are sold every year throughout the world, right? And, you know, it's hard to believe that British and American staple like the ketchup actually started life in 17th century Thailand as a sauce for pickled fish and spices. Now known in the northern Thai dialect as Khoe Shap or Khe Shap. It was first encountered by British explorers who when they wanted to speak to the Thai guys and say what is this extremely hot and pungent sauce? The Thai ladies who would be the sellers of this sauce along with food would respond by saying which meant what the hell are you talking about? Because they couldn't understand English. And that's how the Brits, because they continually heard the word they got it or they sort of appropriated the word into ketchup which might be getting to it. True or false? Okay. The only reason I'm going to, I'll tell you what I'm going to say. With the re I'll tell you first the reason I'm going to say it. 
it's a very, very long, elaborate lie to make. Okay. I have a feeling you were researching turning point. So I'm going to turn around and say it's true. You're saying it's false. I think I'm saying it's true because it's too long and too elaborate a lie to make. I'm saying it's true. You know, the day when Richard, Richard Gasquet finally beats Rafael Nadal, I think <laughs> he will have a feeling which currently okay. I am having because this is so false. It is not even funny. Um, the entire story I, about, it's not even Thailand. I have no idea what Thai women told English explorers, whether they said Koi Shap or not. It's actually from a Chinese dialect of Koi Chiap or Ke Chiap. Who knows what it meant? It was a source of pickled fish and spices. Uh, in Indonesian, Malaysian, it was called Kikap. And then, the, you know, that's, that's where the word with the British and the Dutch and the rest <laughs> of them, the French came in. It became Kikap. But I thought the Thai bit might make you worry. But, you know, Ratin, it was, a, it, it was just, a good story. It was a good story, right? It was so, a good story. And Ratin, don't get into politics. You'll be very dangerous. There. Don't <laughs> ever get into politics. <laughs> You sounded so believable out there. It's not funny. So 1.5 to nothing. This is a rare victory. And this day shall be remembered as the turning point in bare naked lies. When <laughs> finally the tides of history turn in a different direction. But anyways, that was incredible. That was fantastic. I hope everybody loved it as much as Joy and I loved creating these opportunities to try and fool each other. But... Do not despair, because if you thought this was just wetting your appetite, here comes the next section where we will ask the question, the famous quiz question of the episode. But before we do, Joy, why don't you run us through the question which you asked last week and let me give out the names of the correct respondents. And I have quite a few things to say about that. Okay, so my question was that which animal which flora fauna in Afghanistan is named after medieval Italian and the answer of course is the Marco Polo sheep and Ratin tell me you have some correct answers my goodness we have some correct answers and boy do we have some this question was answered correctly joy by 15 people one five which wow. is a record wow. for us of wow. sorts normally we get three four two we have some regulars so Tapas Tiwari, Ramesh Morana, they make the correct answers or they make the honor board once again. But let me reel out a few names and I want to mention all their names. Prasun Dey, Pratyayan Dasgupta, Neeraj Dubey, Chit Nish, Saurabh Shukla, Ramakrishnan M, Anshuman Nandi, Shantanu Sharma, Arijit Hajra, Akhil Singh, Manav Agarwal, Dipto Mukherjee, Tapas Tiwari, Ramesh Mohrana, and Anasuya Mohanti Chatterjee. All 15 of I you got it right. Fantastic. Keep the answers flowing. This is brilliant. And uh, Joy, I think this is the time we should disclose that starting in a couple of weeks, we have some more good news for all of you who love this section. We will be having some special prizes for the correct answer and we will decide how many to give once we finalize that so keep looking out for the space you will be rewarded for answering this and there will be prizes for that but before we go into more details or before we sort of round up today's episode joy what question do you have for our listeners next for this episode 
Well, today's question is simple enough, uh, and it's going to be very, very brief. What was invented after Percy Spencer had a candy bar melt in his top pocket in 1946? So what was invented after Percy Spencer had a candy bar melt in his pocket in 1946? That's my question. Well, a candy bar melting, would that be a life-changing moment? Would that be a turning point? Whatever it is, whatever you think, please send your answers to factofthematterindia at gmail.com. And once again, catch all our episodes on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Report, Stitcher, basically any platform you can think of. Keep writing in, click on the follow button, rate us, give us feedback, check our website, anchor.fm backslash fact of the matter. And we will come back once again next week with another episode of Fact of the Matter. This is Joy Bhattacharya and me, Ratin Basu, signing off. Stay well, stay safe.